Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today we're joined by Chukwudi Uwuji. Hello, Chukwudi. Hi, how are you? Well done on the name, by the way. Pronounced it really well. It's even the last name you nailed. So that's good. Yes. <laughs> so we're, we're off to a good start. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, Chukwudi Uwuji trained at Yale and the University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And his very impressive resume of international theater credits includes appearances at the National Theater in London, the Public Theater in New York, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Donmar Warehouse, Theater for a New Audience, the Old Vic, and the Brooklyn Academy of Music, the Abbey Theater in Dublin, and the American Players Theater in Wisconsin, and, and many, many others. And his television and film credits are too long to list here, but include work on every major network and multiple streaming services. And fans of the Marvel Entertainment Universe can look forward to seeing him in the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which is set to be released later this year. So what is this, Guardians of the Galaxy number three? Yeah, <laughs> the final installment. Well, welcome. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. I imagine Thank there is some so crossover much. between Shakespeare fans and uh, Marvel fans. You know, it's it's very funny because there is something quite Shakespearean about certainly the villains. You know, I play the villain. I mean, I mean, there's something about the villains that, funnily enough, there were mo- there were days on set, there were scenes on set that felt positively Shakespearean. And I'm not just saying that. You know, they often give those characters wonderful exposition to make sound interesting. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so and that's what Shakespeare is. Shakespeare is like seventy percent exposition. You know, I mean. You're sort of trained to like make it sound immediate and interesting and uh, believable, you know? Wow, there, yeah, there really is something to that, right? Why are the <laughs> villains always Shakespearean and the, the heroes always colloquial? Well, there's like a heightened nature to the, to, the, to the villains, you know? That's great. That heightened, you know, ultimately people see entertainment. They don't want to see real life. They just want to believe you, right? There's a big difference between reality and being believable. People want to believe when you're saying certain things that, seem fantastical that you believe it and as long as you believe it they'll go on the ride with you that's why it was so it felt like such a natural fit to play the high evolutionary because it's like while i'm talking about quantum whatever stuff that i didn't even understand as long as i believed what i was saying well the villain is supposed to be impressive but not too sympathetic right not too relatable and i wonder if shakespearean language creates that kind of a distance in the mind of the audience you know it's so weird i think it has been perceived to create a distance people you know go half the people i'm sure friends and family you know dragged screaming and whatever to shakespeare often aren't they or at least even those eager to go of their own volition go with a slight bit of trepidation you know am i gonna get it am i gonna be am i gonna be able to last the three hours and all that for me, my relationship to Shakespeare has always been that it's very inclusive, that it really brings you in. I think he is able to write things in a way that we all wish we could express. And because we've gone, each generation goes further and further away from being able to be expressive um, with words. Everything about progress is about using less words, hashtags, you know, um, you know, sometimes I read text from people and half of it is like initials of things. I don't understand what the hell is that supposed to mean? That when you have someone who can explain to you exactly what it feels like falling in love or to lose a loved one, these heightened emotions and explain it with an image in a way that you go, oh yeah, that's it exactly. That's amazing. And it's, it's I think part of the time, part of the reason why people find Shakespeare distancing is a how it's been taught how you were introduced to it mm. you know the fact that it's made to seem this elitist um 
you know, heightened language, when actually what he's doing is explaining clearer than anyone else has in literature, the most difficult emotions and feelings to put into words. And he does it with his images. Now it's, it's incumbent on the director and the actor to know exactly what those images are and to love saying them and to live in them so that again, if they believe those images and see those images and express them and it makes sense to them, it'll make sense to the 500 or 1000 or 200 people out in the audience. You know, yeah. that's how I feel about it. Well, let's stick with this topic of uh, relatability and maybe even accessibility a little bit further. You've worked at mm -hmm. a lot of different Shakespeare theater companies under, under a lot of different directors and with, mm -hmm. um, you know, names as vaunted, but diverse as the Royal Shakespeare company. <laughs> when you hear that title, it's, it speaks to, it speaks to something, right. As opposed to the public theater. And mm. I wonder, I wonder if you could comment on, you say as opposed to the public theater, you mean the fact that it's this, it, these massive, they're these massive English establishments. Is that what well, you they're mean? both establishments, right? But even in, mm. embedded in the title of the Royal Shakespeare mm -hmm. Company, right? <laughs> the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah. It, it says something. There's something uh, eponymous. I think so. In, in the public theater, it, it says something else. And do you think that, um, you know, those, those ideals, which are maybe encapsulated in the titles themselves, are borne out in the, uh, the, the, I mean, that's an interesting thing. I've never thought about that, but definitely um, in Europe and, and in England, it's, it's dying, of course, because funding is being taken away more and more. There is that idea of subsidized theater, right? Is mm -hmm. that this idea of theater is an important part of our cultural identity. It's not just the luxury. Shakespeare is an important part of the British identity. He is... Britain's greatest export, period. And you get anointed, you know, by the highest office on the land, the theater that produces what is considered worldwide as the greatest Shakespeare productions out, you know, at least the Royal Shakespeare traditionally was known for that. So you were called the Royal because you represented in many ways the best of what is British, the best export. And it wasn't a luxury or pastime. It was part of your life. People went to these plays to hear them. People made it part of their lives to go to these plays. It didn't matter whether you were one of the vendors on the floor hawking your goods as the play went on, or one of the people that could afford the royal box up there. It was part of the culture and it was part of what you looked forward to and it was accessible to anyone who wanted it. You know, when you think of the globe and where Shakespeare came from himself, it didn't come from royalty and stuff. You know what I mean? It's that sort of over the years, sadly, work like this has become something that has been considered quite elitist because it has been very, um, shall we say, it hasn't been opened up for everyone in many ways. I know for a fact, in 2006, when I was playing Henry VI, people were still asking me interviews like this. Was still, what does it feel like to be playing an English king as a black man? I was, you know, or they would describe me as one of, you know, a really great black actor. What does that mean? Just, just call me an actor. Right. It's incredible that in 2006, that question was still being asked and it's still being asked now. So theater hasn't done itself any favors. Certainly classical theater hasn't done itself any favors over the years of carrying on that tradition where it started, where it was accessible to all. And it was part of what people looked forward to. Shakespeare was the Stephen King or the Spielberg of his time. People, common people, 
look forward to his next play, as did the king. So over the years, it's become quite exclusive, um, not quite as exclusive as, say, opera. There's been a great movement, certainly since I came out of drama school and stuff, and I noticed it in my casting and accessibility for me into Shakespeare, to, to recapture that for everyone, including the colors of the people you see on stage, the color of the directors, the color of the people adapting them, the designers and stuff. Theater, funny enough, has been much more, I feel, than film and TV um, the, at the vanguard of actually bringing different cultures and different faces and different colors to the stage, you know. In America, the negative connotations of reverence is that, oh, the Brits do it so well, let's try and do it like them, when actually he belongs to everyone. You know, um, this weird mid-Atlantic accent that Americans sometimes take on when they do Shakespeare. To yeah. sort of go, I'm like, what's going on there? It belongs to you as much as it does to England. And this sense that if you're going to do Shakespeare, okay, you can't do it in the same voice you would use to do Mammoth. I was like, what's that all about? My whole training with Shakespeare has been about I'll tell you a funny story. My first day at the Royal Shakespeare Company, I had gone, I was about to work with Cicely Berry, the great, late, great Cicely Berry, and John Barton, who were people I worked with and would have private sessions with in my Amazing. first year professionally with them. And I walked into the first session with Cicely Berry and I had a um, show my age, uh, cassettes <laughs> of Alex Jennings doing the sonnets. You know, Alex Jennings, that voice is like syrup. You know, and I thought, oh, I'm going to try and sound like Alex Jennings. And Cicely Berry, I said, oh, I've been working on these sonnets by Alex Jennings. And I showed it to Cicely Berry. And she said, oh, interesting. And she flung the, the tapes across the room and smashed them against the wall. And said, never, can I swear on this podcast? It, because she swore like a sailor, God rest his soul. She said, never fucking use anyone else's voice but your own. Chikuri, listening to you, your passion for, for this material is very clear. Um, <laughs> And your relationship with the RSC began in the early 2000s, right? Yeah, 2000, actually 2001, January 2001, yeah. Wow. And you've appeared in, in multiple productions over, over many years with mm -hmm. them. And, and you're looking at your theater resume, it looks like your, your theater resume is very much grounded in the classics. Is this, is this what you always intended for your theater career? Is this what you set out to do? Is it something that's... that's... It began... By accident, as most things, I, I believe I wanted to, somewhere in me wanted to be an actor. It hadn't codified itself yet, but I was in England doing, uh, I did my A, we have this thing called A-levels, you know, and in England, they sort of make you make your decisions very quickly, you know, from 15, 16, you're narrowing down the subjects you're going to do drastically, actually, as you get older. And when you go to university, you go straight to do your major. So you go straight to do law, you go straight to do medicine and so that. And it was very clear to me that although I was on a path to law or international law of some kind, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. And I knew I needed time. So I said to my dad, look, I think I want to go to America because, of course, you have this wonderful thing called your liberal arts education. So you have two years where you can do whatever the hell you want while you decide what you want to do. And my dad said, OK, if you're going to go to America, you have to get into an Ivy League. I think he wanted to set me a challenge and whatever. And I said, okay. And I got into Yale and it was the most expensive bet of his life. And I got into <laughs> Yale. And while I was at Yale, I finally felt the freedom. I had time. I was doing everything from my first ever psychology class to capoeira, to history of African arts, to all sorts of stuff. I felt for the first time, my first chance that, let me just explore a little. So I, I you know, I saw an audition 
for a play I actually it was a callback but then I didn't know the difference between a callback and an audition and I just turned up at the callback and everyone was like who the hell is this but I got the part <laughs> you know so that's what was important um I saw a sign said um uh, an advert saying they were auditioning for Jean-Anouis Beckett you know that with that and when I had been in, living in Ethiopia as a kid I was 10 years old the television was awful in Ethiopia. So we had this wonderful amongst the expats, these uh, black market of VHS videotapes of different movies. And one of the movies that al- arrived on my lap was Beckett, the 1964, 62 movie with Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton. And I was, I was completely obsessed with this film. At 10, for some reason, I just couldn't get wow. over it. I just loved their dynamic. Fast forward literally 10 years, I'm at Yale. And I see this and I go, oh, I'm going to audition for that because I know this. I know this. I've seen the movie like 200 times. <laughs> and I got the part of Beckett and I, the head of drama at Yale gave me a scholarship off my performance in that to go to Milwaukee, to the conservatory where he was about to take over. And I didn't find it hard. I found it challenging, but not hard. That's a big difference. The challenge, challenge you sort of keep pushing yourself towards the, the peak of things. Hard mm-hmm. means like you're not getting anywhere yet. Mm-hmm. I knew I was getting somewhere, but I could never stop. But it's, a, it's <laughs> an enormous leap uh, to go from, you know, what was it, Milwaukee, Wisconsin? To yeah, yeah. The RSC. There's, you have to help us fill in the blanks there. <laughs> okay, how did that happen specifically? In my sec- first year or second year there, Lisa Harrow, who is this, wonder- who is this wonderful classical actress, she was... You would know she's done so much, um, but she came to do a workshop at my drama school. And I did a scene from Richard III with Lady Anne. And that was her favorite scene. She'd actually done that scene and done that play with Patrick Stewart. If you watch those old, uh, those videos, um, Playing Shakespeare by Jim Barton, she's one of that group that Lisa knew I recognize the name. And she took a liking to my work and said, Look, if you ever decide to move back to London, I'll, I'll let me know. I'd love to help out because I think you've got something. So when I decided to move back to London after drama school, she connected me with her agents there. And the first audition I had when I moved back to London was with the Royal Shakespeare Company a week after I moved back. It was a general audition. We're just seeing people. But luckily for me, when I went in, I, I was supposed to go in and meet one director, uh, um, David Attenborough. But David and I spoke for like an hour. And before that end of that meeting, word got around. I ended up meeting the late, great Stephen Pimlot. Then I ended up meeting um, Edward Hall. And, um, and basically, I was in that building for like three hours meeting these people. And I got the job. I got the job in the ensemble. I started off as a spear carrier. But being a you know, I played the tiny role in Julius Caesar. I played the soothsayer in Julius Caesar. And I played... Um, one of the ambassadors in Hamlet, not the one that speaks, the other one. (laughs) It was like a textbook for me because I did that, went away to the National and I did uh, the back eye with Sir Peter Hall. Again, playing one of the backache women, but I was understudying Will Houston who was playing, uh, God, I always forget that character. One of, you know, the Greek structure, there's always three of them. Pentheus, Mm -hmm. who who was playing Pentheus. And this is no joke, guys. First preview, Will has an accident. And at four o'clock in the afternoon, Peter Hall puts his hand on my shoulder and just went, you're on. I'd never had an, a rehearsal yet as the understudy, just a line through. That night at the National to a packed house, I played Pentheus in a Sir Peter Hall production at the National. And then the next time I went back to the, the RSC, which was merely months after this, 
was to play Ophidius in um, Coriolanus because they took a chance on me. Say, okay, audition for Ophidius, see if you're any good in Fenton. I got that. And that was a hit show. And so the RSC got back. So when they were doing the history cycle with the grace of Michael Boyd and he gave me Henry VI, and that was what broke because it was such a successful season. It was a new generation of actors coming through. Jonathan Slinger, Jeff Scretfield, he played Henry V, he played Richard III. The, the history that we called, it was the history cycle. We did all eight plays, the same company. And it was a huge success. And that really launched everything in a big way. Wow. So yeah, there are gaps to fill in, but a lot of it is, it's, it's luck. It's, 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 are you in the right place at the right time? I, I think on a, on a number of occasions, you've talked about your drive, you know, I, I absolute luck, but for sure, there's got to be something else beyond luck that keeps you moving forward. Speaking of that, you came to us, we noticed that you were, had uh, taught a workshop at the Red Bull Theater. Yeah. That's how we, <laughs> that's how we clocked you. And we were like, oh, we got to yeah. get this guy. Um, and so let's shift gears for a hot second and talk about when you're teaching Shakespeare, where do you start? What do you do when you teach? My whole thing comes back to how we started this conversation of demystifying the whole thing. Again, it goes back to how it's taught, how you're introduced to it, but there is this complete abject terror of Shakespeare. And there is this distrust that it's real. And there is this, uh, effort to flower it up and suddenly there are danger words like that I believe exist in Shakespeare but I, I'm wary of using them because in the wrong hands they're dangerous like poetry mm-hmm. lyricism rhythm all things that are in there you have to be careful using them they can be easily misinterpreted I they're not rules but they're all these um tips shall we say when you see a monosyllabic line try doing that line slowly just really slowly to be, not to be. That is the then it's sudden syllabic. It is the cause. It is the cause. My soul, let me not name it to you. You chase stars. It is the cause. I believe probably the longest monosyllabic sequence of lines. I mean, you have to slow down. That's a, one of the tips that John Barton or whatever. Why do you do it? Because, hey, technically, monosyllabic lines, if you speak them too quickly, they get jumbled. But usually when Shakespeare gives you a monosyllabic line, he's telling you something is happening to you that you're not using the words to explain, right? So you need that time. Tips like that. Then I talk about line endings. Just try it for me. Just leave a little moment between each line. And I'm not telling you to do anything with that. Just, just, read the, just read it for me and read and hold. Suspend the end of the line before you get to the next one. Even if the sentence runs through, don't do it. Just hold. Okay, what's going on? Why, why would he break the line up there? You take Hermione's speech after being in prison and she comes to, you know, she's just given birth in prison and she's accused of being unfaithful and she has this amazing speech to her husband who's accusing her. And the line endings are in such awkward places that it keeps breaking up sentences. And if you take those line endings and actually take a little breath, a little moment before that, you realize, my God, is this woman okay? Is she she, she thinking straight? And suddenly the act, you know, oh, of course, she's just given birth in jail. She doesn't understand what's going on. It takes a while. Then suddenly, by the end of the speech, when she's found her voice and her anger and the fact that she's the, the daughter of a king, the line endings are now forming full thoughts. Those are just three 
examples of the sort of tips you can throw at people and let them discover what it means to them. And then I always come back to the imagery. One of the students brought a speech in from, yes, Comedy of Errors, Adriana, and she's trying to describe what her love means. And I don't know the play that well. So this just blew my head. The image of it blew my head. For no, my love, as easy mayest thou fall a drop of water in the breaking gulf and take unmingled that same drop again without addition or diminishing as take from me thyself and not me too. What an image. Mm -hmm. And she was just saying, you know, she was running the line through to make sense as you would speak. But I said, take a moment. You can take a drop, a drop, drop it into an ocean and pick up. It'd be easier for you to pick up that exact drop you've dropped in the ocean without any addition, no more, no less. It'd be easier to do this than to bring what I, the love I have from you. I mean, that specificity cannot, you know, so live in the image. And yeah, it, it is amazing. Yeah. And that's what Shakespeare constantly does. He says human interaction can be really amazing if you just listen. That feels like such a nice segue to the piece that you've chosen to share with us today. <laughs> <laughs> this this obscure this obscure few lines from the canon. Little you know, known piece. Of, yeah. little you know, we were always it. advised in school never go to an audition and do Hamlet. Just don't do it because you'll always fall flat. Right for years, we we're told run away from Hamlet. Don't do it. And then, unfortunately for me, I finally got to play him here at the public, and you know, we toured it around prisons and community said to people who wouldn't normally see and it's the the reaction there was one night I was doing it in the women's shelter and I started to be or not to be and a homeless woman at the back finished the line for me in perfect I am I am oh pentameter and I there was another night here in Harlem at the community center I started doing it and there was a woman in the front row she was just staring at the floor shaking her head just staring at the floor leant forward and I was drawn to her and I went up to her and she looked up and her tears coming in. And I did the entire speech to her together, holding her hand and the whole room. So many, it is the greatest role ever written. I was in Rikers prison and um, I was about to start to be or not to be. And so I was tying, I was about to basically inject myself and kill myself, give myself an overdose. And I started to be or not to be and I saw couple of rows back this stoic big big guy just looking at me this is Rikers prison I don't know whether these guys who how many of these guys will see the light of day again but he looked at me about to shoot up and he just shook his head and mouthed don't do it oh don't do it this is the humanity and the connection Shakespeare and then this was what I felt in so when I went back to the public to actually play it to quote unquote a normal audience all those experiences of what these words mean made just made on and that's what Shakespeare that's what Joe Papp did want it that's why he took it out on the road that's why it is for the people it is as excessive a father came up to me with his little girl, he was Latino, and he just said, I'm so glad that her first ever Shakespeare seen you do it. A man mm. of God, so she knows it can belong to her also. So that's what the mission is, guys. It isn't just yeah. about 
high budgets and costumes. So when I chose Hamlet, it's because A, it's the greatest role I've ever played. A, it's the only role I would ever want to return to play. And B, it's not just the greatest role I've ever played. I feel that the study of human connection in his speeches and those great five speeches has just not been matched anywhere else. So why not read it, you know? Yeah. So let's hear it. Let's hear it. This is um, Hamlet. What is it? Act three, scene one? Yes, correct. And I think you'll recognize the speech. To be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against the sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them, to die, to sleep, no more. And by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance, to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare budkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life but that the dread of something after death? That undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied all with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pitch and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Mm. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. In terms of, you know, it, some of the things that you were talking about when teaching acting and some of the things you were talking about before that were definitely evident. Um, slowing down on the monosyllables, uh, mm. taking, taking those little hitches at mm. the end of the line. Um, but one thing that you didn't mention is when you had a midline stop in yeah, some of right. these and accelerating through that and how you accelerated yeah. through those, it was the, which created the, an energy in the middle of this sentence, which is just fantastic. You can't let the audience ever get ahead of you. I think that would be the technical thing about it. But also, it's the way we think. It's the way we talk about certain things. People always think when you're acting <laughs> that when the big shift happens, it requires space. 
doesn't always happen like that. You can be talking about something and then a, a dog, the, a, your dog slips out of your, you could be having a conversation and the dog slips out of your grasp and the car's coming and the scream comes straight away. There isn't a moment of hold, pause, take a breath, scream. The scream just comes out. Right. You know, you can, you can be, you can be in the middle of a heated discussion, but you're keeping your cool and stuff like that. And somehow you're talking about something. And by the way, you know what? That happens. The shifts are what make, um, if you look at the early histories, those midline things don't really exist. It's really to the end of the thought and then to the end of the thought. And it's beautiful and it's a wonderful pace. And it's a one, but then as he got, he started doing what we now call psychology right. and understanding that he was doing it in his language. I said, oh yeah, I can change that. I mean, the, one of the hardest ones is, Leontes and a really brutal one is Prospero. The mid yeah. mid stop things in Prospero are like, oh my god, am I just gonna cheat? Because that takes a lot to make that happen, you know. Yeah. But yeah. maybe by that point, actually, it would have been all right to break up the verse a little bit more because he demanded it. But in these around those mid stop things with Hamlet, it's the speed of thought. It's how he's here one minute and here the next, and that's what's exciting. And the audience never get ahead of you that way, yep. you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, I've got a question because there were the, there are those that would say that absolutely everything is right in the text. It's right there. The, the, the yeah. words on the page and the way that you embody them is everything. But I don't think that actors can really divorce themselves from the contextual information as well. And sometimes this is is very individual and unique to the actor. So I guess my question, I have an Uta Hagen question for you. And mm -hmm. for this, there is no right answer. Of course not. But, but if you asked Kenneth Branagh, where is this, you know, what, what's the contextual information for the speech? You say, well, Hamlet is in a hall of mirrors and Polonius mm. is, and, and Claudius are listening. Or, or there might be another interpretation where, you know, Hamlet is, is, has, has a needle to the vein. So in mm, your so imagination, did, yeah. in, in your actor's imagination, when you're speaking right now, how much of that contextual information is present to you? And, and even... I don't, I, at the risk of annoying some of your listeners, it really is more straightforward for me in the sense that I can sit here and drop into the language of the speech because that's all we have. I'm sat in front of a camera to you guys and you've asked me to, I can drop into the language and the words can resonate with their meaning to me and the sound, their sounds to me and the meanings to me and the rhythm it does to me. And that's all I need to have delivered that to you. Does that make sense? And I can admit that. I can, I'm happy to admit that it didn't go beyond that. People often ask me, what's your process before I go? I drill the lines hundreds of times. As soon as I get to rehearsal on day one, the last thing I'm thinking about is the line. And all I'm thinking about is affecting you because that's why we're doing this and not reading it and stuff. It's people seeing how I'm affecting you, how you're affecting me, how that conflicts and that's conflict and that's drama. And that's why it's lifted from the page into onto the stage. So my favorite part of doing any play is rehearsal. My favorite period of doing any play is previews. Because hmm. you go, you try it, yeah. and there's this extra energy that's the audience. And I don't care what the setting is. There is that other X factor, which is the audience, that they then lift you in a certain way and affect whatever it is you've been doing in that rehearsal room gets affected with that audience. If not, why open the door to them in the first place? But really, I really just drill the lines. And then I step into that room and I'm in the room. And then the director 
can tell me something that contextualizes it more than what I'm seeing in the room. And then I'll use that. Even mm. Van Hove, when I did Hedda Gabler, I played Lovebog. And there's that wonderful scene where he says he's killed a child. He's destroyed the manuscript. He lost the manuscript. And I remember Evo telling to me, telling me, when you do, when you start this speech, fall on your knees, do it out to the audience and just do it out to the audience. I was like, oh, that sounds a bit dramatic. Fall on my knees and just do it. But I just did it. And then I started speaking the words which evoked losing the most precious thing I've ever done to that audience. And suddenly the, the context, which people would say would be, he's on the road to suicide, right? That's the context of Lovebog at that point. I didn't think of it that way. I got on my knees and I said it out and I demanded by doing it that way that the audience listened to me. And I went through the journey of saying it out there, not thinking about, oh, how do I play this? Like I'm going to suicide or not. That's the story they will see. They will see that. They will assume that. Yes, my job is to be there, to be the image of what they're seeing. That's in the language and that's in the words. And that's humbling yourself to the language and to the words and leaving all that other shit alone. Right. So would it be fair to distill this philosophy as something like your job, as you see it, is to speak the words and trust the audience to fill in the rest. As long as by speak, we understand speaking the words isn't simply a motor or intellectual exercise. As long as we understand that speak the words includes what are the words doing to you? How are they resonating to you? What images are they triggering for you in that moment in front of that person? How are you using the words to affect the other person, which is the biggest part. That's 70, 80% of it is to affect whoever, whether the other person is the audience an imaginary person or someone on the stage with you. Yes, then yes, that is, we can distill it to that, that as long as speed encompasses all of those qualities because that's all you have. That's all you need for me. And then you surprise yourself, you know, you go, God, whew, voice is shaking now. It's surprising. It comes out of nowhere, not the emotional exercise of trying to get there before you walk on the stage, that's cheating to me. Yeah. You know, if, if you're supposed to come onto this stage happy, but by the end of the scene be destroyed, then do that. Don't prep the destroy part because you know that's what you want to show. Don't prep. That's, that's cheating. That's bullshit. Right. I remember for hours doing Henry VI, being tortured about, will I cry? Will I cry in the molehill speech? Will I get there in the Torturing myself. And then I remember one night, I went out there, same thing. And just about to start doing it, there was a front of house lady who had seen the show probably 20 times. And just as about to do it, she did this <gasps> gulp of emotion. And I heard it in that silent house. And I just lost it. Standing crying. And I went about me it's not about focusing on me right be open to what could happen there's so i was affecting her and i wasn't crying and i affected her and then by knowing i affected her i started to cry all these surprises can happen if you just leave yourself alone and focus on affecting the other person which is what we do in life whether we're asking to for a seat in the subway or whether we're asking the tax man to give you an extra couple of weeks to pay the bills or whether we're asking someone out to go out with you or to dinner, you're affecting them. You're asking for something. That's, that's the majority of interaction in life. So 
why do we, when we get on stage, start focusing so, focusing so much on ourselves instead, as opposed to doing what actually happens in life, which is affect others? That feels to me like such a beautiful place to leave it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but I can continue but I wanna, talking we forever. We, I feel like we absolutely could. Absolutely. I had you. such a great time. Thank you for the great questions and inviting me on. It was a real joy. And also, I'm going to take some of those thoughts away and go, yeah, because I'm figuring it out as we go along. That's going to be the whole journey, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And also, I have to say, it's unfair. Our, our listeners can't see you on video, but looking at you on video, you've already had, tw you know, 20 years and more of yeah. success at playing leading men. And to look at you, it looks like you're going to have another 25, 30 years playing <laughs> oh, leading men ahead of you. Bless you. Thank 100%. you so much. That makes a lot, especially from two strapping young men like yourself. Oh, That's very yeah. kind. <laughs> <laughs> Chikwudi, it's been delight delightful talking to you. I hope our paths cross in person at some yes. point. Me too. Me too. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Yep. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.